Pickering talks about how ready colonial authorities are with the death penalty. So you have this American talking in dismissive terms about Australians' willingness to execute people. This is Know What You Think. I'm Sasha Rosen. In 1839, Sydney woke up to find a pair of military ships had just popped up in the harbour overnight. It freaked the city out. Or at least we're told it did according to the man in charge of those ships, Charles Wilkes, a strict, self-important scientist who, at the time, was in charge of the United States South Seas Exploring Expedition, or the XX. The XX was a mission of non-violent exploration of Antarctica, the Pacific Islands, in theory. But at the centre of this story are all sorts of uncomfortable words like colonialism and just plain violence. Will Skates Francis is writing a PhD about the XX and about how the people on the expedition saw the expedition. Will, thanks for coming in. Happy to be here. What was an expedition like the XX like? What were they looking for? The main purpose of the expedition was surveying in a number of different areas in the Pacific that had yet to be surveyed. Kind of like filling in for them blank spaces on the map. Essentially. But it was also to place America on the world stage as a scientific nation. America at this period in time was a very young nation. And so they were seeking to put the expedition alongside Cook and alongside La Perouse as an example of America's commitment to science and technology, which were objects of great prestige at this period of time. We think of America as this big global player, but that was after 1898. At this point, they are not that player. No, they're a kind of up-and-coming nation in a lot of ways. And the Pacific is filled with American interests. There are traders going from a number of what were then called the South Sea Islands, which were islands in the Pacific, to China to trade. And also the Pacific Northwest was kind of this hub of trade as well. And so the expedition was seeking to make links and aid the work of American whalers and sealers and China traders. What was the expedition made up of? What sort of ships were there? Who was on it? There was about six ships that initially set out from New York. The ships were a kind of range of different classes. One was a large sloop of war. There was a supply ship. There were a number of small, very, very fast cutters. They would have struck a very impressive kind of image on the horizon, these six ships, some of them kind of flitting in between each other. And this was in contrast to most of the exploring expeditions that had preceded this. Cook had, at most, just a few ships, and they were very small in comparison. We look back and we think there are only six ships, but like the comparison is always outfitting an expedition to the moon. This was a big deal. The expense was immense, especially for a nation which wasn't that wealthy at the time. This was kind of the last expedition in the age of sail. When they returned to New York, the ships were towed in by steamships. It's an expedition which was painted with the precursors to photographs, a device called the Camera Obscura. So it's this kind of edge point and an end in a lot of ways of exploration of the Pacific. This was kind of the ending of that era. The main figure in this story is Charles Wilkes, who was technically a lieutenant when he left. He's a very controversial figure and remained controversial throughout his life. He was a strong disciplinarian. He was very self-conscious and he ended up eventually promoting himself to captain. Within a few weeks of the expedition leaving New York, he started wearing epaulets. The things on your shoulder. Yeah, the which... things on your shoulder, which were confined to captains. He didn't fly the pennant, which was the most clear sign of captaincy, and he didn't wear a captain's hat. But he demanded that everyone refer to him as a captain. By the time he leaves Chile, he's wearing the full getup. He's clearly a captain. He demands that everyone calls him captain. But 
there's a constant sense within the crew and within himself that he's not deserving of it. He hasn't earned it. He hasn't been acclaimed a captain by the Navy board or anything like that. And that's the case up until his return. And his return is met with a court-martial. A lot of what we know about the expedition is through another lieutenant called William Reynolds, who was a great writer who kept a private diary that's a source of a lot of our information about the expedition. You also have the scientific corps that are a rambunctious group of scientists, very young. I mean, what you see with the entire expedition is that it's mostly young men, men of low rank, comparatively. And the scientists are not quite scientists, but they're not quite the dilettantes that defined most of American science up to this point. This was the point where science was becoming much more of a product of a kind of organized academy. But they were on the edge of that. So you have Titian Peel, who's the artist for the expedition, who's a great shot. You have Pickering, who's on the one hand, he's described often as bookish, but he also is very, very attached and goes into a rage when his favored Bowie knife pistol is taken from him on the Columbian River. Bowie knife pistol. He had a pistol, which was a knife. Yes. Uh, So most of the expedition was armed with pistol knives as well as rifles and bayonets. And this is, again, a sign of that changing time. They had these ridiculous implements that could be used to slash through the bush, but also shoot people. And they were used to shoot people. One of the big underpinnings for this expedition was science. They were meant to explore the Pacific Islands and Antarctica and kind of one of the origins of this expedition as well, though, was that there was this guy who had a theory there was a giant hole in the middle of Antarctica that led to a world inside the Earth. What was the deal with that? Yeah, so this is a figure called John Sims. And Sims had this theory called holes at the poles. He saw that a whole bunch of reindeer and birds and foxes seemed to travel north in the winter or around winter, and then they would come back fat. And that didn't make sense to him because it's a snowy wasteland. So he thought that at the poles, there were these gigantic holes that led down in concentric circles of land. It's kind of hard to imagine, but essentially they're kind of pillar, a hole that went all the way through the earth. And within the earth, there was a whole bunch of really tropical land that these reindeer were going to. Initially, he was pushing Congress to fund an expedition to find these holes. We look at this now as ridiculous, but did his peers at the time respect this opinion? Initially. (laughs) Enough that he was viewed as a little bit odd, but at the same time, this was a time where a lot of new developments that would have seemed bizarre were kind of being confirmed. He falls off the story of the expedition after a little while, but he's kind of the starter gun that sets this off. He's there advocating for science. Just to check in, because later on they do go to Antarctica, Mm. do they find a giant hole? No, no. (laughs) They find Antarctica, but they don't find a hole, no. Okay, cool. Just checking. (laughs) Just making sure. Did they get good science out of the expedition? A lot of the kind of intellectual work that came from the expedition would bear fruit. You see this with Pickering, you see it with Hale's work on linguistics, and you also see it with someone like Dana, who was a geologist, whose work looking at island chains is a kind of precursor to plate tectonics. One of the better known encounters was at the Tuamoto group of islands. Yeah. What happened when they tried to land there? So they were met with a group of people who really didn't want them to land, who were demonstrating on the shore with weapons. And Wilkes had been tasked with peaceful relations with the people that they met. American empire was to be an empire of science and commerce. They weren't conquerors. But as soon as he came close to the shore, he decided that his need to land overrode that sentiment. And so he ordered the crackshot artist, Titian Peel, to fire upon the people on the shore using mustard shot. So mustard shot is bird shot, small pellets. 
And when that wasn't enough, he ordered basically the entire launch to open fire upon them, again with shot, not in order to kill, but it was enough to drive them off. This kind of resort to violence is a constant feature of the expedition, and it's a product both of their need to fulfill the expedition's primary goal, but also of the constant fear that they lived in when they were in these kind of areas. It turned out later on that people on the island had a good reason for not wanting them to land. Those islands had been used in the past as target practice. Whalers would come past and they would shoot islanders who were on the shore. There was a translator on the expedition who was variously known as John Sack or Tuati, who was the son of a white man and whose mother was an Apui. So he spoke Maori and was able to affect an approximate translation of a lot of the languages that were spoken in the Pacific. And he reported to Wilkes that the islanders were yelling at him saying, this is our island, go back to your island. This was something that Wilkes was not willing to do. Despite the assertion that American empire was to be of commerce and science, he wanted landfall. Wilkes saw himself as pretty civilised. Certainly. Do you think he was civilised? Civilization's a funny thing. You find that violence, when it's perpetrated by others, takes on a different quality to them. So there was a melee that we'll probably talk about later in the Fijian islands that ended with a number of European soldiers killed. And those two soldiers were stripped naked, and this was viewed as being a desecration. But when the expedition arrived on the shore and found these dead soldiers, they also found 10 dead Fijians, one of whom wasn't quite dead. In response, they bayoneted him multiple times and then decapitated him. And so what they would have cast if it was something done by Fijians as savagery, to them is righteous revenge. And so the constant violence of the expedition is always cast in civilised and civilising terms, even though oftentimes its motivations seem a lot less that. A lot of this attitude to the people on the islands they visited kind of came together in Malolo. What happened there? At Malolo, a small group of people from the expedition went on shore to trade. One of them was Wilkes' nephew. They took a hostage and it all kind of goes wrong. The hostage tries to escape They fire over his head and then a melee erupts on the beach. Through the course of this melee, two Europeans are killed and ten Fijians. When Wilkes hears about this, he flies into a rage. The entire expedition essentially wants revenge. They head on shore and Wilkes is said to have issued the order, kill all of them except for the women and children. And this is the second time they've done this. They go through and they burn all of the houses that are on that island and they massacre a large number of people. The rockets that they fire into the village sets the village alight and many people burn alive. And then when the Fijians come to Wilkes to submit, he demands that they bow before him. This to Wilkes is, in a sense, fulfilling the goals of the mission in asserting American power, that Americans aren't to be messed with. This was an example. And many of his crew, they said that he didn't go far enough, that the killings and burning of villages weren't sufficient. And this is a mission that is tasked with ostensibly treating the people that they encounter with respect and leaving them alone. Yeah, so this is the contrast, is that on the one hand, it's a non-intervention strategy. The outline of the mission is non-interventionist. In reality, they take on this policing role. One of the most tragic stories of the expedition is the story of Rove Dovi, who was an important figure. He was the brother of the King of Rewa, which is a Fijian island. And he is basically taken hostage by the Americans and taken back to America where he dies. This is, again, as a policing measure. It's to make Americans feel safe in Fiji. And in doing so, it's kind of this betrayal. And it leads to the expedition being viewed with such distrust throughout their time in Fiji. 
when they get back to the States, Wilkes is court-martialed. He doesn't get in trouble for this, does he? No. Interestingly enough, the massacre is included as an aspect of that court-martial. They essentially find him completely without fault, and he's lauded for those actions as an act that established American power in Fiji. He's reprimanded for his cruelty to his sailors, but when it comes to cruelty towards Indigenous peoples in the Pacific, it's not something that they view as a problem. This is the sort of court-martial where I think you get prosecuted for immoral cartography? Immoral cartography in terms of Antarctica, because he was viewed as fraudulently claiming to have discovered Antarctica as a continent. It wasn't found out that he actually discovered Antarctica until much later. For a long time, he was viewed as a fraud who falsely claimed to have discovered Antarctica. So he had maps of Antarctica and stuff, but no one believed him. No, no one believed him. So this one thing he did really well. He did well considering the difficulties of charting in what are just the worst conditions imaginable for a sailing vessel. And these aren't sailing vessels designed for sailing in the Antarctic. They're designed for running the seas of the Pacific, which are very, very different. You have ships crushed by the ice and they're wrapping blankets around their feet because normally sailors go around on boats with bare feet. So by the point they leave the Antarctic, most of the crew is off sick. They're exhausted. Wilkes had this habit of depriving himself of sleep, but also his entire crew. And they can't even get excited about discovering Antarctica. The crew are so caught up in the machinations of the boat and of the surrounding crushing ice that they don't even get excited. And he takes four ships down, brings four ships back, which is pretty impressive considering Mm. the ships weren't ready for it. In 1839, they've been going around the Pacific for a while. They land in Sydney and the next stop is Antarctica. What's their impression of Sydney? Most of them found it to be a very immoral place. Pickering talks about the drunkenness of the men and, shockingly, of the women. They view the convict system as being this great crime. What seems to us now is quite ironic is Pickering talks about how ready colonial authorities are with the death penalty. So you have this American talking in dismissive terms about Australia's willingness to execute people. And they also weren't impressed by the colony's attitude to Indigenous people. Pickering particularly had a quite different attitude to a lot of his colleagues. He talks in his diaries about the black crime of the treatment of Aboriginal peoples by the British in Sydney. It will go down in history. And he bases this upon passing encounters that he has with Aboriginal people in the colony. Very, very brief contacts. He's walking through a crowd and he sees a man who is unmistakably Aboriginal. And upon this, he bases a huge amount. It's a moment of 30 seconds. And he uses it as an opportunity to dismiss what he views as being the caricaturistic representation of Aboriginal people outside of Australia. And he says all of the representations of Aboriginal people that we have seen so far in the Americas have been caricatures. And he talks about Aboriginal people as both being exceedingly intelligent and also being naturally beautiful. Does this sensitivity extend to the Indigenous people in the Americas for him? No, and that's what's an interesting kind of contrast. You find this in two main strains. One is in terms of the slavery they come across in Brazil, and the other is in terms of the treatment of Indigenous people in the Pacific more generally. And Pickering has sensitivities towards America's Indigenous population, but they don't extend to the kind of condemnation that would characterise his look at Australia. It's easier to see injustices committed by other people, essentially. essentially. With Pickering, despite being a race scientist, he's not a white supremacist, which is one of the really interesting contradictions that we have with Pickering. He talks about white people as being the robber race. He says that white people never attain civilization of their own accord. I believe his words are, there's no edifice of man was erected 
from the temple of the Greeks to the lone grave of the American Indian that was not destroyed by the hand of white man. He says they are a nation of pillagers. For him, despite asserting what was the current scientific consensus about the existence of race, his understanding of race is not of white supremacy. But again, we find this abandoned to an extent when it comes to Fiji. Fiji, where all of this violence the expedition was involved in, is the place where his charity towards Indigenous people stops. He abandons a lot of his humanitarian sentiment towards Indigenous people and replaces them with the kind of racist caricature. Race is being invented at this point in time. They go out and they find it. They see it everywhere that they look. But a lot of the people that are making race aren't actually in contact with anyone who's not white in any kind of serious way. Scientists are sitting in Europe or in North America thinking, race, this is a thing, let me strike my chin and imagine it. Yeah, you have people like Kant and Blumenbach inventing these sets of races. And one of the main foundations of American understanding of race is someone like Samuel Morton, who had this office that was full of skulls that were collected from around the world, but that he did not go himself collecting. He uses these skulls, he measures them, and in them he finds confirmation for his views, views which were then used to justify slavery and which were white supremacists. And just to be clear for people listening, scientifically speaking, is race a thing? No. No, not at all. So with their Antarctic expedition, their weird appearance in Sydney, their massacres in the Pacific, Mm. and the original goals of the expedition, do you think it was a success? It was a success in the way that it presaged American empire in the Pacific. Its charts, for example, were extensively used for a very long time. And the discovery of Wilkes Land, which is what it's now called in Antarctica, is the basis for American claims on Antarctica. The expedition discovered Wake Island, and they were the first expedition to go there. And Wake Island became a very important American naval base. What you find is that it was a success in terms of furthering that empire of American science and commerce. It really set up those connections. In that respect, it was a success. In terms of the way that it was viewed when they returned, Definitely not. It was a massive controversy, huge failure. All of his lieutenants are court-martialing him and he's court-martialing them. And there's just a flurry of ridiculous controversy that surrounds it. And this is partly due to the character of Wilkes, but it's also because of the domestic American politics. The expedition is almost forgotten. They come back and the government that funded the expedition is on the out. They were funded by the Jacksonian Democrats and they come back to a Whig who is disinclined towards lauding the achievements of a expedition funded by his predecessor. They come back at the worst possible time. And when Wilkes' obituary is written, the USXX almost isn't mentioned. Will, thanks for coming in today. It's been a pleasure. Will has given us a link to a Smithsonian write-up on the expedition. The Voyager's collection of stuff helped to found the Smithsonian in Washington. We'll put a link up on our show page and in the podcast notes for this episode. If you like this episode and you want to hear more, we've got lots more. Go to fbiradio.com slash notwhatyouthink to hear all of this season's episodes and three seasons worth of archived episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast there and get each episode one day early. Is there something you think we should make a show about? There's a link on that page for you to tell us all about it. If you like us, you'll probably like a bunch of other great FBI podcasts. Choose some at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Not What You Think is produced by Olivia Perry Griffiths and Lachlan Wiley. Linda DeLacy is our production consultant. Show art by Annie Hamilton. Executive producer is Samira. It was created by Laura Briley, Claire Holland, and me. I'm Sasha Rosen. Next week, grandmas. <laughs>